the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It was just about a year ago that we began our verse-by-verse study of the epistle of 1 Peter. And so it was around January of 2019 that we studied this passage, chapter 1, 1 Peter, verses 14 through 16, which I'll read for you. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So how are you guys doing in that? Are you holy now? I mean, it's been, what, nine months? You've had plenty of time to be holy like your God is holy. Of course, I'm being facetious. Being holy is a daunting task, to say the least. In fact, you've probably experienced this. As a Christian, as you strive to be more holy, naturally, one of the ways you do this is to read God's Word more, and you learn what holiness truly is, and as you read it more, to be more holy, the task seems all the more daunting and impossible because you realize exactly what holiness means in the character and person of God. But, like the gracious God that He is, God does not leave us to our own strength. He does not leave us to our own devices. He helps us along the way. It is only by His strength, His might, His power, His ability, His Spirit, His Word, that we can be holy as we've been called to be holy as our God is holy. And as we've been going through our passage over the past few weeks in 1 Peter chapter 4, that explains the reality of persecution and the blessing that results of it we come to the end of the passage that reminds us that even in persecution, even in his desires for what persecution does for us and in us as Christians, as his children, we are reminded of his loving, albeit often painful, help in our pursuit, in our race for holiness. First Peter chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, as we close off this section, that we began in verse 12. Follow along as I read our passage for the morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man And the sinner. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. We finish off our outline, which is and has been seven components of persecution to remember in order for us to maintain our joy. Because we talked about this strange uh, command, this mystery in which in the midst of suffering, 
in the midst of trials, and specifically in First Peter, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of, say, being hated, being physically harmed, being emotionally abused because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ, persecution, we are to have joy. And the seven things we've been looking at are not about joy, not about uh, how to manipulate your, your mind or your emotions, but there are seven things we are to remember about the persecution itself. And we have seen by way of review in verse 12 our expectation. The first thing to maintain your joy in persecution is understand what Jesus promised, what Jesus said because of who he is, because of who we are, that persecution is going to come. And verse 12 just says expect persecution. It won't happen to everyone, but it is highly likely. In verse 13, we saw the exaltation. To have joy in suffering, especially as we look to future glory. Knowing that this refining, knowing that this testing will reap reward as we share in Christ's glory when He returns again. The third component we saw was the encouragement. In verse 14, it says that we are blessed when we are persecuted. Why? Because in persecution, the Holy Spirit will manifest, will act upon a special ministry in our lives in that He will give us rest. We saw number four, the exclusion in verse 15. He says again, as he said elsewhere in 1 Peter, I'm talking about being persecuted for righteousness sake. And so the exclusion in verse 15 is he lists these different crimes, these different sins, and he says, don't be persecuted for these things. Naturally, you will. Right? You'll get in trouble with the law. People won't like you, things like that. But that's not what we're talking about. He says, you shouldn't suffer because of these things. You shouldn't practice these things at all. Rather, you should be suffering for and only for the name of Jesus Christ. And we finished last week with verse 16, the exaltation. And where he simply says that if you are reviled for the name of Christ, do not be ashamed, but glorify God in this persecution. And that only is possible, that only makes sense if you've understood the context of everything that he's talked about with the blessing of the rest of the Holy Spirit, future glory, the refining process, all of those things. We come this morning then to the sixth component of persecution to remember in order to maintain our joy, and that is the eminence, the eminence, the greatness, if you will. Verses 17 through 18, let me read that for you again. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved... What will become of the godless man and the sinner? So what Peter is doing is he's giving us a comparison between the judgment of the believer and the judgment of the unbeliever. Now we understand that God's judgment in Scripture refers to his dealing with sin, his punishment of sin. For the unbeliever, it is eternal damnation should he never turn to Christ until, up until the point of death. Because of that association with God's judgment, right? hell, eternal condemnation, all those types of things, it's all the same really. It may seem strange or confusing to speak of the Christian, the believer, the born again, to be judged for his sin. But in contrast to eternal punishment, 
Peter is continuing his teaching on God refining the Christian. And in this context, when he refers to the judgment on the household of God for our sin, he is now talking about being disciplined, being chastised for our sin. God's judgment, according to verse 17, will begin with his people, the household of God. This is a phrase that comes out of the vision that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 9. At that time, God was speaking to him about his judgment beginning in the temple, again, where his people are. This is a reference to God's people. And the idea is that he is judging or he's refining, he is purifying, cleansing his people. We've seen this concept already in this passage in talking about the refiner's fire, right? The, the, the smelter who melts the gold so that the dross, the impurities could be removed. And that fire hurts, that fire melts, but that fire purifies. And so it's talking about purifying his people. This is the same idea with Christians today. It will begin with the household of God. It will begin with the church, Christians. Not the church building, but the church, the believers that make up the capital C, Universal Church. A judgment from God in the New Testament, when it's referred to, generally speaks of final judgment, right? The day of judgment, you've heard. And we know this is true because of the reference to the judgment of unbelievers who never obey the gospel. However, the wider context of what we have already been studying also tells us that this is a judgment that begins right now among those who are living. And it helps to understand that at the fundamental level, this kind of judgment is God making a decision based on somebody's sin. It is God making a decision based on someone's sin. In our lives, as Christians, because we are saved, because we are declared righteous in the blood of Christ, it is not a judgment unto spiritual death. Again, it is a chastening. It is a cleansing of our sin because the punishment for our sin has been taken on the cross by Jesus Christ. This is a concept that is found elsewhere in the New Testament. I'd like, to turn you, I, I'd like you to turn there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 31 and 32. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 31 through 32. And naturally, all these passages are referring to Christians. Verse 31, 1 Corinthians 11. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not condemn, be condemned rather along with the world. Again, he sets up the difference, right? The judgment is of two kinds. There is a discipline, a refining, right? It's, it's like when we talk about disciplining our children, it's different than punishment. It's, it's different than Uh, the death penalty or life in prison where you just messed up and there's no changing you, we're just going to punish you. Discipline is something painful, a removal of a toy, a, a removal of screen time, a physical spanking, whatever it may be, that hurts to teach them, don't do this again. And this is exactly what God does with us 
when He judges us and disciplines us. So that, Paul tells the Corinthians, we will not fall along with the condemnation of unbelievers. Turn forward to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 of Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews says this, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. This is a simple comparison to human parenting. You understand this. Who, what parent just lets their child do whatever they want with no repercussions? Right? They say no and they still do it. They break whatever they want. They eat whatever they want. They spill whatever they want. And they just say, just do whatever you want. There's, there's no rules. Right? There, there's, there's no discipline for wrongdoing. You say, well, the, the dad does it because he loves them. That's not love. To not teach them how to function in a society where there are rules. To not know how to function in a classroom where there are rules. We need to teach our children how to behave properly, and especially Christians, how to behave properly in the eyes of the Lord. And that, for the Christian, is ultimately what discipline in parenting is. It's not so they will listen to us. It's so they will listen to us so that they will learn to listen to God. And I tell my boys this. Listen, I know this hurts, but it hurts much, much less than what the Lord will do to you should you never obey Him. But coming from God, He says, what father is there that doesn't discipline his child in some way? Sure, some of you may think back to when you were disciplined by your parents and you thought they were just, it was just anger, it was sinful, it was wrong. And that's the difference between us and God. God disciplines us perfectly. But theoretically in the human's life for the same purpose because he loves us but his love is not questionable his love is not fleeting his love is not uh, doesn't come and go based on his mood and he goes so far as we just saw in hebrews 12:8 that if you aren't disciplined by god then you're not really belonging to him this reminds me of a conversation i was having with my boys in the car uh yesterday Thank you for your prayers. If you haven't heard already, we found out that the, the baby, uh, uh, our unborn baby, is a girl. I have three boys, eight, six, and three, and they're going to have a sister, which they've been praying for every night, <laughs> literally. So God answered their prayers. And I've been trying to prepare them already um, how it's going to be different in how they treat a girl in the house, uh, a little girl, right? Still, they are treat mommy differently than daddy, but a little girl, especially a newborn baby, but as she grows up, you know, and I, obviously they're the oldest, only eight, so I wanted to keep it PG, but I wanted them to understand uh, to a certain degree that they live in a wicked world and wicked people do wicked things to girls. And I just said, look, guys, you're all very handsome boys, so there's a very good chance your sister is going to be very pretty and you need to protect her. 
you need to protect her when she goes to school. And we kind of left it at there, at the school age. And so I, I tested them. I gave them different scenarios, right? And obviously, I, I don't want to expose them to things they don't need to be exposed to at this point. So I said, what if, what if some boy comes up to you and says, I think your sister's really pretty and she doesn't like me, but I'm going to marry her, right? So just random scenarios like that without talking about uh, you know, sexual, sexually implicit types of things. And so I would go one by one, and then I said, Ethan, Ethan's our six-year-old. I said, Ethan, what are you going to do when you're on the playground and a boy comes up to you, or uh, excuse me, I said, when, if your, your sister comes up to you and she's crying, and you say, sister, why, why, why are you crying? I said, that boy, there's a boy in my class, he stole my backpack and he hid it, and he won't give it back until I kiss him. And Ethan said, well, I will go to that boy, and I would ask him politely, please give my sister's backpack back. And if he says no, I will ask him politely again, and I will keep asking him politely again, and again politely, and again politely, until he gives me the backpack back. Such a sweet boy. I said, no, 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 son. (laughs) If you ask politely once and he says no, you go get your brothers. (laughs) Especially Abel, because he's going to be gigantic. (laughs) And I'm not saying as you walked and find this boy to go out, out of your way to do this, but if there happens to be a baseball bat lying on the ground on your way, pick that up. And you go to that boy and you get the backpack back because you protect your sister. The reason I said this is because he had gone to the point where he had already asked politely, which is the first thing I want him to do. But sometimes asking politely is not enough. God has asked us very politely. And yet we still sin, and we don't stop, and we don't give the backpack back. And when asking politely is not enough, he allows trials and persecution to make us respond and to make us grow. That's what Peter is saying here in this passage. He goes on to say then, on the other hand, there are those who do not know Christ. They have not partaken of his righteousness. So they are not disciplined for purification, they are condemned for their sin. And the question at the end of verse 17 back in 1 Peter 4 is rhetorical. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? This particular disobedience is referring to a rejection of the gospel up until their death or until the Lord returns. And so they are condemned. And when we go to verse 18... Peter is saying the same thing again with another rhetorical question, which is actually a quote of Proverbs 11, verse 31. quote of the Septuagint, actually. And here he points out that the righteous, meaning believers, are saved with difficulty. Now, I want to clarify this because the English can be a little misleading. It doesn't mean that God finds it difficult to save people. 
This is a reference, again, to the difficulties we face, the challenges believers face, to get to the point of final salvation when we enter into heaven. And just to clarify on a theological level, you understand even, uh, for example, when uh, the, the New Testament writers write being saved, they usually refer to justification, right? Something that happened in the past if you're a believer. But sometimes Paul will refer to we are being saved or we will be saved. And what he's talking about is the completion of our salvation when we are in heaven, we're t- taken up into heaven and we are in our glorified bodies. And this is the same idea here when he talks about that we go through difficulties in this process of salvation, which might be more helpful to call it this process of sanctification. Turn with me to Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 22. In Acts chapter 14, 19 through 22, as you're familiar with the the book of Acts, it is a lot of narrative. It is descriptions of different scenes that are happening. They're stories, real stories. And here we get one, and we hear uh, some very wise words at the end here. Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. And, and here, before we get to 22, so there, this is a missionary journey. He's preaching, he's preaching, he's, he's in ministry mode, he's in preaching mode, he's filled with the Spirit. And verse 22 tells us he was strengthening, or they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is a guy who was just stoned. Right? Do, do you know what this means? Right? They, it, it's horrible. They basically pick up rocks and throw rocks at you until you die. And they, they thought he was dead. So that's why they stopped and dragged him out of the city. Uh, but he was alive. And so here again we see he's preaching. He is saying, through many tribulations... Must we be saved? Not justified through the process of sanctification. God allows many difficulties. And here, in his context, again, this was persecution, right? In our context, back in First Peter, we're talking about persecution. But we know that sanctification, the difficulties that sanctify us come in many forms. This is ultimately what we're talking about here is what Jesus calls the narrow versus the wide road. Back to 1 Peter 4.18. And so again, Peter sets up for us a comparison between the believer and the unbeliever. Even with God's grace in salvation and grace in post-conversion life, the believer faces the opposition of the world and persecution and the purging, the cleansing of God. And so he says, what will it be like then if we endure such difficulties and we belong to him and we endure these difficulties because he loves us, because we are saved? What will it be like then for the one without God's grace, without God's salvation? And in a way, 
Peter is encouraging us in our trials in this life. He's really saying we must persevere because no matter how strong the opposition is that you face in this world, no matter how humiliating the persecution, no matter how painful the discipline of the Lord, it is nothing compared to the irreversible fate of the unsaved. So, we are reminded to persevere knowing that these difficulties are for are good. And within the, within the sovereign grace and goodness of our God, He has not only given us the privilege of being like Him, to be holy, but when we fall short or flat out fail, He helps us along by allowing persecution as well as discipline in our lives that we might excel still more in holiness and godliness like that refining fire that melts the gold, like that physical activity that breaks down the pride of the soldier, the muscles of the athlete to build them up to be the best athlete, the best soldier, the purest gold. And in the midst of those refining difficulties, remember that the other way There's no multiple choice. There's A or B, right? There's for or against. The other way is both awful and eternal. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's the alternative. It's not an option for you if you're saved. You can't lose your salvation. But what Peter is doing is he's reminding reminding us. right? This isn't a call to evangelism. I can uh, definitely, uh, I think this passage should stoke the fires of evangelism in us. But he's setting up a comparison. He's talking about God's judgment. He says the other way is much worse. So understand how good you have it. Remember, there is no middle ground. You are either a real, true Christian or you are not. You either belong to God and you love Him or you are an enemy of God and you are at war with Him. You may not know it. The unbeliever may not know they're at war with God. They, they may not engage in battle in a, in a physical sense or even in a conscious effort like I'm doing this to battle God, but they are at war with God. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area. There is no lukewarm Christian. You're either for him or against him. And what Peter is saying in these two verses is the same principle on a more practical level. You're either being purified from your sin or condemned for it because you're either for or against. 
And just as you would prefer to be on God's side versus the other side, trust me when I tell you that no matter how difficult it may be, you would prefer to be disciplined for your sin versus condemned for it. And this is why I call it the eminence of persecution. Because this is the better way. This is the right way. This is the good way. And you understand that it would still be the better way if it was just he brings difficulty in your life and that was it. But it's all the more the better way and God honoring because he brings difficulties in your life so that you may achieve what is your innermost greatest desire, which is to be holy, to be like Christ. The purification through judgment for believers allows us to live as brighter testimonies. As the discipline of the Lord wipes away the the slime and the sludge away from the surface of that light bulb so that we may shine brighter for His glory and for God's people and for the world. Let me give you a seventh component of persecution to remember to maintain your joy. The entrusting of persecution. The entrusting of persecution. Verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You've heard it said before that attitude is everything. So true in so much of the Christian life. Our attitude in all the suffering is essential. How we view it is going to make the difference between, we, between honoring God and dishonoring Him, between joy and depression. And again, Peter reminds us that the topic at hand is the suffering that is according to the will of God. This is what he says right here. Those also who suffer according to the will of God. In other words, persecution for the name of Christ and chastisement from the Lord for our sin because we want to be more holy. Therefore, the word there, summarizes all of Peter's encouragements and exhortations up to this point and leads us to the duty we have in suffering, which is trust God. Trust God. See, the word in trust that he uses here means to deliver something over to someone for safekeeping. I entrust this into your hands. It's actually a banker's term referring to a deposit. You get this? You give your valuables to a bank and they keep them safe. In our situation, we are entrusting to God. What we are entrusting to God is our souls. And here is not talking about flesh versus soul. What we're talking about is our entire being in this context. So we're not handing over valuable possessions to a banker, but our most valuable possession, our very being, us, to God. God is our protector. And though He may allow and will physically harm us for our good, He ultimately holds our souls in His hands. We belong to Him. We are His. And He is jealous for us. But our faith in Him is not a blind faith. It is based on His character, which is seen in Peter calling Him our faithful Creator. Not only is He named as the one who made us and thus loves us and cares for us, but He is called faithful. 
Let's start with this word creator. He created us. And he knows everything about us. He knows the intricacies of our physical anatomy, but also our spirituality and our emotions. He knows where we excel. He knows where we shine. He knows what we pursue. But he also knows our sins. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our inborn traits. And in all of this, he still loves us. And this needs to be connected to his sovereignty over trials in that they are, in his infinite wisdom, allowed and controlled on the basis of his provision, but also our state of mind and being. He is your God and Father who has taken a special interest in you and taken charge of your soul. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 is very true. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, there's nothing unique to your difficulty, though it may seem that way. And it goes on, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. See, he controls the floodwaters. He knows exactly the amount of chastening you need and can endure, the amount of persecution that you can endure. He is in complete control of the refining fires. He loves you. He's faithful. He's your creator. And to that point, more than our creator, he is our faithful creator. See that banker's term in trust? When you entrust someone with your money, you would naturally be concerned with the ability of that bank or the trustworthiness of that individual. You wouldn't hand it over, your, your, your most uh, prized possession, this, this jewelry that you inherited from your great-grandmother that's priceless. You wouldn't hand it over to safekeeping for safekeeping to someone who's always losing stuff and is very forgetful, whose house is a mess, who's unreliable. You wouldn't take out your life savings from Wells Fargo Bank and then bring it to this new bank that just opened down the street, which is actually an ice cream shop, but has a cardboard sign in the front that with a handwritten letters, bank. But a bank with a reputation of trustworthiness, a bank as one has that's been around according to their commercials back when they were carting money around in stagecoaches, a bank that's backed by the FDIC, no problem trustworthy. They are trustworthy. I can entrust my money to them. But God, God is a stronghold. God is a rock. God is a vault. He is faithful, Peter says, in that he can be trusted. He is faithful, and this is important, in that he has never changed, nor will he ever change. He won't change the interest rates on you. He won't go bankrupt. He won't be involved in some sort of scandal and lose all of your money. He is faithful. And so, in the midst of difficulties, when we talk about this is for your good, God is sovereign, you understand that he is faithful. You understand that he loves you. That He is your Creator. More faithful than any bank 
more trustworthy than any individual, than any doctor, than any suction cups on a window. We can trust God with our souls. So, if we can do that, we have to remember that in the midst of evil and oppression, we can trust Him. We don't have to capitulate. We don't have to give in to temptation when difficult times come. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to seek retaliation. We can trust God's faithfulness and continue pursuing, as Peter says, what is right regardless of the consequences. Your pursuit of holiness should not be dictated by your consequences. You shouldn't stop reading the Bible and serving people and being an encouragement just because you're being persecuted. You shouldn't stop evangelizing just because your wife is in the hospital. In all of this, we continue to pursue what is right. What does it mean to do right? Well, Peter, specifically in the context of persecution, has already given us some pretty crazy illustrations and practical examples early on, right? He says, we are to pursue what is right, even in submission to our bosses who beat us, our husbands that rape us, and our governments that are immoral. He said that. And in this context, 2,000 years ago to his original writers, it was a very immoral government that was killing Christians legally. Slave masters could beat and sexually abuse people just for their faith. And there are Christian women who, because they became Christians, they would no longer go to the, the temples, temple gods, and worship with their husbands. The husbands could beat them into a coma, and there was nothing wrong with that. That's persecution, and Peter says, still submit to them. Honor the Lord with joy. But what's more, we understand from the context and the entirety of Scripture, we are to love our enemies in the midst of persecution. We are to pray for those who persecute us. To be willing to face the pushback when we choose to obey rather than to do what society wants us to do and just follow the norms and follow the status quo or at the very least maybe appease our consciences by not following the status quo but keeping quiet about what we truly believe. And I think this is a great final point. Because the overall theme of what we're talking about is finding joy in persecution. You can't find God-centered joy in anything if you aren't doing what is God-centered. And so entrust. Entrust your souls to the Lord. Again, I think this is a good final point. Because I think the problem so many of us in facing persecution or our fear of persecution is that we're looking around. We're looking around. We're looking at the boss who might not like the fact that we're Christians, but he has control over our salary promotion. And so we're looking at the corner office before we see if he's walking down through the cubicles before we speak up about Christ. We're looking at the doctor who sees your baby as merely a lifeless fetus who can be discarded for your convenience. And you're afraid to maybe speak up. We don't believe in that. You can stop giving us that as an option. We're, we're looking to make sure the waiter is back in the kitchen before we pray for our food. We're looking at the circumstances, the consequences, and the culture. 
We're worrying and looking around at all the what-ifs. What's his what-if? What will he say? What will he do? What will he think? And we look around and we look around and that is the problem. Because if you're busy looking around, you're not looking up. And you need to look nowhere but up. Look up. But what about look up? But that guy, look up. But he's going to look up. But he lost his job. Look up at God. Stop looking around. Look up. Entrust your souls to a good and loving and powerful sovereign God. Because when you're not looking at God, when you are not trusting God, no matter who you are looking at, ultimately and truly, you're only looking at yourself. Because all the what-ifs end with me. What if he says this to me? What if he thinks this about me? What if this happens to me, my job? My kids, my family, my church, me, 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 me. And so really, when I say either look around or look up, those are your options, I'm saying look up and stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your comfort, your perceived needs, your selfish desires. And this whole point, the whole point of this entire book flies in the face of comfort and selfishness and self-seeking because we're talking about discomfort and persecution for the sake of someone else. Ultimately, for the sake of God, for the evangelization of the law, secondly, for the edification of the saints, secondly. But everything is outside of yourself. We endure, we grow, we pursue holiness, Because there's someone better, there's someone bigger, there's someone more important than us. I mean, let's be honest. We talk about the fear of man. Uh, Unless it's someone you're really close to, we don't really fear what will happen to other people. I, I, I I know many people, Christians, who struggle with the fear of man, but I don't know any of them who has gotten a, a, a license to, to carry a firearm and has patrolled all the schools in this a- area for fear of an attacker coming on campus. We're just concerned about ourselves. We want to be safe. We want to be comfortable. And I think, uh, you know, I, I shared this with the men on Thursday night at our men's group. And this is not, this is not, this is just first fleshlonians, okay? This is my opinion. This is my view. This is not... This is not me saying it's sin if you don't do this, but I think we do so much in our everyday life that trains our minds and our physical bodies to be comfortable and do whatever is most convenient. I have no problem, problem with texting, but there's some things that deserve a phone call. And I think we've all texted people and we're like, oh, I should be calling him about this because he's going to misunderstand. But we don't want to make a phone call because it takes time. we got to go through small talk and all this stuff versus like, hey, you shouldn't have done that. Right? And I think if we are so okay with doing things that are good, but in the most convenient way possible, then how in the world are we going to endure difficulties to the glory of God? 
Because modern technology in our culture says take the easiest road possible. Don't own a Bible, use your Bible app. Don't dress appropriately, just dress down. Because as long as you're comfortable, right? As long as you're comfortable, never mind the people who have to look at you, never mind the people who have to smell you, no matter the people that you're rubbing elbows with, as long as you're comfortable, that's all that matters. And I think we would all agree, every time you, t- you turn on the news, this is ultimately the problem. Right? Trump is not the problem. The Democrats are not the problem. This is the problem with Trump and the Democrats is they just want to do what's best for them. They want to do what gets them reelected, what gives them power, what gives them influence. It's a self-entitlement that we all have. We just feel like we deserve, we deserve. I get this. And so when you go through a difficulty and you don't find joy, of course not. Because you have trained yourself to get whatever you want your way or the highway. And so when I want kids and the Lord doesn't give me kids, I don't find joy in that because I deserve kids. I want kids. And when all my friends are starting to put down down payments to own a house and I still have to rent, I deserve a house. It's not convenient for me to have to walk up these stairs to have a, a next-door neighbor that's playing loud music on the, on the other side of the wall. And so it's uncomfortable for me. It's not convenient. And so I'm not finding joy in this at all because we've trained ourselves to get whatever we want, whenever we want it, take the easy road. Narrow road in salvation, of course, but the wide road in everything else. Right? And I'm not saying go make life more difficult for yourself. I'm not saying stop using a computer and just handwrite everything. Right? You'll probably get fired if you turn in your forms that way. But you get what I'm saying. It's an it's a, it's a overall mindset. You can't be, have a life of ease and laziness and, and all, the, all the so-called spiritual good things, and then when difficulties come, then I need to really trust the Lord and, and know how to endure. We don't know how to endure anything these days because we've redefined what discipline is. We've redefined how we discipline our minds and our bodies. It's just, it's just mush now. We need to trust the Lord. And your attitude is going to be everything in this. And if you're just cruising through your spiritual life, just in neutral, rolling down the hill, there's going to be a point where God says, I'm going to make you hit the brakes or step on the gas and your leg is atrophied and you can't even do it. There's nothing, you know, this is not something that's easy to swallow in talking about persecution and difficulties. But again, when we discipline our minds, when we trust the Lord, when we understand God's character and His purposes and all of these things, then when we say, hey, when some guy clocks you one, because you mentioned the name of Jesus and you can smile because you have joy, it's not because you are clinically insane. It's because you have understood and embraced these seven components of persecution to remember to maintain your joy. To understand, to expect persecution because of who you are in Christ. To exult in Him, to rejoice in Him because of the blessing 
to be encouraged by the refining process. To not be persecuted for those things that are excluded, sins and crimes. The exaltation, which is to lift up and to glorify God rather than to be ashamed. The eminence that it is a better way and God has called you to himself and is refining you as opposed to the opposite, which he's not going to deal with your sin right now, but will condemn you. And finally, the entrusting, which encompasses all of this stuff. And so, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you can just read this passage, re-listen to these sermons, and automatically joy in persecution. It will be difficult. It will still hurt. It will still hurt your feelings. You will still cry and weep, which is different than joy. You can cry and weep and have joy. It hurts. But you will do it in a way that has God-given, God-centered joy and God-focused glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you love us so much that you are willing to watch us and allow us and grow us through difficult times. I can't bear the thought of my children going through difficulties. And yet I know it is an aspect of your infinitely wise and eternal love that you want to make us more like you, to fulfill the privilege of being Christ-like. And so, Lord, may we keep these verses and these points in mind that we might truly have joy in persecution and live in a way that where we don't fear persecution, that our testimony is loud and bright. Keep us from denying you, dishonoring you, because we're so scared of what other people will think or do. Help us always, not just in these circumstances, but in every circumstance, always look up at you. In Jesus' name, amen.